Amen. Just to clarify, that wedding is at 4 o'clock p.m. at Littleton Bible Chapel. And again, uh, you're all invited to come to the ceremony. Very thankful for this. This is a day of celebration, cause for rejoicing. So if everybody could uh, turn around and look at Hunter real quick and give him a, a little wave and maybe we'll be praying for you, brother. <laughs> when did you say it's your last day of what? Uh, let me grab this quick, sorry. Last day of freedom? Okay. Well, very good. Well, you're all invited to the ceremony, Littleton Bible Chapel, 4 o'clock p.m. But for now, let's continue our worship as we open up to God's Word. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses here. But for our reading this morning, we're going to do uh, verses 10 through 15. We'll get through every verse, uh, Lord willing, of 1 through 15, but for the reading, 10 through 15. So uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Acts chapter 17, excuse me, verses 10 through 15. This is God's word. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the tremendous privilege of being together here this morning, singing praise to your excellent name. Uh, rejoicing in your holiness, rejoicing in your gospel that saves sinners such as us. We just are so thankful, and we pray now that you'd be blessed by the reading of your word, that you would change our hearts through this text, and even cause some to respond uh, uh, kindly uh, to your text this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, the gospel faithfully proclaimed will always bring some sort of response from its hearers. I've shared these words from Steve Lawson before, who once told his congregation, I don't want you to leave this building today indifferent to the truths of the gospel. I want you to either leave here sad, glad, or mad, but don't leave here indifferent. But even leaving a setting where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed indifferent or apathetic or unconcerned would be a response in itself, right? And a strong response at that. We've seen in our time in the book of Acts this year, this past year, some of these varying responses from people, right? Uh, You remember Peter Peter was preaching at Pentecost. Uh, The text says some were amazed, some were perplexed, yet some said Peter and the apostles, they must be drunk. He and John go into the temple. They heal a lame beggar. They declare that it was done through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some wonder, some marvel, yet some were greatly annoyed 
and agitated. Stephen does great signs and wonders among the people who are left in awe at the power of God on full display. Yet, when he goes on to preach Jesus before the Sanhedrin, they become so furious and enraged that they have him stoned to death. This persecution then scatters both believers and the gospel all throughout the region, just like Jesus said it would. Philip goes to Samaria, proclaims to them the Christ. Luke said, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said, and there was much joy in the city. They responded with much joy. An Ethiopian eunuch hears the word. He believes the word. He is baptized. He goes on his way rejoicing. Saul of Tarsus, one who approved of the execution of Stephen, a ravenous persecutor of Christians, now known as the Apostle Paul, is converted. And the text says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And Luke says, all who heard him were amazed as he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. They were amazed. They were Perplexed, they were confounded. Yet, the very next words we read this. When many days have passed, there were other Jews who plotted to kill him. Kill him. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. Different responses from different people. Some rejoicing, some amazed some annoyed, some angry, some even willing to kill because of their indignation and hostility, hostility to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, but no indifference. No indifference. If you're actually listening to faithful preaching, you will not leave this place without some kind of response in your heart. Everyone will respond in one way or another. Different people will respond differently to the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, the Christ of God. Some people will receive the word. Some people will reject the word. Some people will believe the gospel. Some people will not believe the gospel. Some will be awakened to the uh, a divinely inspired recognition of the eternal truths of their creator, embracing and acknowledging his perfect plan of redemption, which comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And some will ve- vehemently oppose their maker. They will remain enslaved to their sin nature. They will remain his enemy. They will reject him by worshiping other gods or even attempting to redefine or reshape his righteous character into a god of their own image. Or more commonly today, even in this place on this very morning, they'll fill out, deny the existence of God and his word, and they'll refuse to hear his word. Let's just deny him. Everyone will respond differently to the truth of the gospel. We see an example of both types of Uh, people in our text today, receivers and revilers, believers and unbelievers. And we see them in two cities, okay? Thessalonica and Berea. Look with me at verse one. Luke writes this. Excuse me. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, excuse me, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, a couple of interesting points here. 
First, they were traveling from Philippi on this road that's called the Via Ignatia. That's just kind of, kind of fun to say there. Via Ignatia, the way through Ignatia. It was a Roman road late in the second century BC. It was made of large stones with a layer of sand on the top. Now, this road was 700 miles long, okay? 700 miles long, 20 feet wide. It, it stretched all the way from the Adriatic Sea to the Baltic Sea. That would be like a 20-foot wide road going all the way from Denver to Kansas City. All those stones. That's a lot of stones. That's a, that's a lot of rock. And that's the, the road that Paul and Silas and Timothy used to go from Philippi through these two cities into Thessalonica. Now, they didn't travel the full 700 miles, okay? It was about uh, 35 miles from Philippi to Am- Amphipolis. You know, I have this written in my uh, thing here. Amphipolis, another 30 to Apollonia, and 30 or so to Thessalonica. I have it written out like it's in a dictionary. Here's how to pronounce it. Amphipolis, Apollonia, and 30 or so to Thessalonica. We can still see remains of this road today. You see that? That's actually in Philippi. That's the road that they would have started on in Philippi. That's today. <clears throat> now, what's fascinating is the second point that I want to make, okay? We just figured that the distance from Philippi to Thessalonica was about 100 miles, right? You got 35 uh, 30 and 30. But remember what just happened to these guys. They were, they were beaten with rods. The magistrates ordered to have them beaten with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon their bare backs and legs, they threw them into prison. Within the next few days, they leave Philippi. Their bodies are beaten and bloodied and bruised, and yet they are on a Holy Spirit-appointed mission. So on this very road, whether on foot or horseback, we don't know, likely foot, uh, they made the trip to Thessalonica. Now this is incredible if you think about it. I know it's very easy to just read over this without thinking about how miserable this hundred mile long journey must have been on this rocky highway with these, for these beaten and bloodied missionaries here. But I want to remind you of the conclusion to our time last week and Paul's words to the church in Philippi. Remember in his letter to the believers at Philippi, he said this, rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul and Silas, they left Philippi bloodied and beaten on the outside. Their physical bodies were wrecked. But with a peace, they had a peace that surpassed all understanding in their hearts and their minds. Why? Why did they have this peace? Well, it's because they heard and believed the word of God. They, they responded to the call of their sovereign Lord and they knew they were right where he wanted them to be on this road, going to this city, proclaiming this gospel to these people. So they had a peace that surpassed all understanding. Verse two, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. As was his custom, his manner, his habit, his ritual, 
His priority was to go into these synagogues. We saw this in Antioch and Pisidia, then at Iconium here in Thessalonica, and a few verses we'll see it in Berea. Next week in Athens, followed by the same ritual or custom carried out in Corinth and Ephesus. He'd go into any major city and he'd make a beeline for the synagogue where he would then make a beeline to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course that's what he did. Why wouldn't he do that? This wasn't mere Pauline methodology here. This was divinely ordained to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jesus said the same thing. You will be my witnesses. Start in Jerusalem to the Jews first. Having said that, though, Paul was eager to go to the Jew first. Paul loved his own people, his kinsmen according to the flesh. In his letter to the Romans, he wrote as much. He wrote as much. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, giving the law, the worship, and the promises. Listen to this now. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Oh, how Paul loved his people. And even though he was called an apostle to the Gentiles, which he was, his priority, just like Yahweh's priority, was the redemption of the people of Israel. Even after he declared to some that he was turning to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 13, even after this, typically the first thing he did when arriving in in these major cities was go right to the synagogue. And notice Luke says here that he did this in Thessalonica for three Sabbath days. Three Saturdays, not three weeks, not necessarily three weeks in a robe or three consecutive weeks, but for three weeks he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Don't miss those last three, three words in verse two there, okay? From the scriptures. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul didn't go into these synagogues to catch up with old buddies. Okay? He didn't have a lot of buddies back then. He went in, in there with a purpose. He went in there with an objective, an aim, and that was to declare to them the very same message. To you belong the patriarchs, and from your race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. He went in proclaiming the Christ. And he did so standing on the foundation of the scriptures, the sacred writings, the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which bore witness about the one who was to come, and indeed the one who had come. The long-awaited, highly anticipated Messiah, the Savior of Israel and the Savior of the world. This is just one example of why this Unhitch from the Old Testament movement by Andy Stanley and those of his ilk. It's really, it's, it's insane. That might be one adjective. Uh, maybe better to say foolish. Ignorant. Idiotic. I prefer intentionally and demonically deceptive. Why in the world 
Would we unhitch from or neglect that which affirms the gospel, which has the power to transform our cold, dead hearts? Paul used them. Jesus himself said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. But what scriptures? Hebrews? James? 1 John? 1 Corinthians? Matthew? No. The very same scriptures that Paul used in this synagogue here. Luke says Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. The word reasoning here indicates the messages in the synagogues. They weren't necessarily in sermon form. This was more of a conversational tone, maybe a bit of back and forth, but there was teaching and instruction throughout here. He was reasoning with them, again, with the scriptures as his foundation. What better foundation to stand upon and to rest upon when proclaiming the truths of God Messiah, God's Messiah than the words of God himself? What better foundation to stand upon than the the divinely inspired, God-breathed, perfectly sufficient, perfectly adequate, inerrant, infallible word of God? Paul knew that the power did not reside within himself or his oratory abilities. But it rested in the gospel itself, which is the power of God for salvation. The gospel of God, which is both revealed and demonstrated in the word of God. He told the the church in Corinth the same thing here. He said, my speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? Why, Paul? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So the foundation of Paul's reason, reasoning was the divinely inspired text. But now let's look at closer at the content of his message there. Again, verse 3. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he talks about the promises of the Old Testament. In those days, it wasn't uncommon for some rabbis and scribes to teach that there would actually be two messiahs that would come. Okay, one would be a suffering messiah. This is clearly taught in Isaiah 53, Daniel chapter 9, Psalm 16, others. Think of Psalm 22. I mean, the whole psalm is centered around the suffering servant of God who cried out with nail-pierced hands and feet, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The Jews couldn't deny this reality, so they had to teach it. Yet, other texts clearly indicated that the Messiah would come and be a great conquering king. This is what they were all waiting for. Uh, leading, the people, uh, leading the people of God in victorious battles and delivering them from their earthly oppression and their earthly oppressors. That he would triumph over the enemies of God, that he would establish the throne of of David and Jerusalem forever, thus fulfilling the covenant made with Israel's greatest earthly king. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. That's the Savior we want. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Conqueror, victor. But he suffered. So what does this mean? What are we going to do here, my brothers? Is God's Christ going to suffer or will he reign victorious? Will the Messiah be a suffering servant or a conquering king? And Paul's answer is yes. Yes. The scriptures told of one who would both suffer and reign victorious, not two messiahs, but one Messiah. The scriptures told of the one who would be despised and rejected, oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is for its shares of silence, so he opened not his mouth. He remained silent. He took it. Whose grave would be made with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Yeah, the scriptures tell us of this. Our prophets said this. It was written down for our instruction. Isaiah said that Messiah would come and suffer. But then he said in the very next breath, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. See his offspring. Prosper in his hand? How is this possible if he's dead and buried? Well, Paul in this synagogue says this. Let me reason with you, brothers. You don't have to go on making two messiahs, okay? The only way this can be possible is if the messiah the one true Christ of God was raised from the dead by God. And I'm telling you, this is exactly what happened with Jesus of Nazareth. It was Jesus who hung on that Roman cross fulfilling the words penned from eight centuries earlier. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And it was Jesus who then triumphantly raised from, was triumphantly raised from the dead so that he could say, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. You offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. That was Jesus who said that. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. That means he was raised, he didn't stay in the grave. So just like Peter said at Pentecost, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Paul says, my brothers, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's the Christ. 
Look at the response then in verse 4, okay? Again, we see some who receive this truth, some who revile this truth. And I would ask you, which one are you? Luke says, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. These were God-fearers like Cornelius and the Ethiopian eunuch, like Lydia from a few weeks ago. But Luke says, some of the Jews in the synagogue were persuaded. That just means that they're receptive to the truths of scriptures, not emotionally manipulated by the speaker. Uh, Some Jews were persuaded and join them. Praise the Lord. He's building his church just like he said he would do it. But look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. Likely the leading Hellenistic Jews of the city, they were jealous. Uh, The word jealous here is used to describe an envy that is boiling over. When it came right down to it in the way they saw it, uh, just like Jesus of Nazareth, Paul was going to come in here. He was going to mess with their religion. He was going to mess with their position in society, and they couldn't have that. This is just like many living today. They're maintaining the worldly status during their temporal, earthly existence. This was much more important to them than hearing and believing in the one who gave them life and sustained their life, what he had to say about their eternal life thereafter. Isn't that true? Do we see a lot of folks walking around thinking about what's going to happen to them when they die? Where they're going to spend eternity? No, it's all about the here and now. This perfectly describes these religious zealots in Thessalonica who Luke says in verse 5 took wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. I think that's a nice way to say it. They took some wicked men from the rabble. That's another way of saying they took some of the riffraff of the city. The hooligans, the thugs, the ruffians. They turned them loose on society. They turned them loose to make a scene, to start a riot. I actually like the King James here. Listen to this. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them a certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, (laughs) gathered a company. Lewd fellows of the baser sort. That's very classy. Maybe we should start calling the KJV the PCV. Anyhow, I like it. It's classy. These lewd fellows of the baser sort, this mob for hire, they set the city on fire, all in hopes of <coughs> flushing out and finding Paul and Silas, but they couldn't, as Luke says in verse 6, and they could not find them. They dragged, uh, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, how clever is this to invoke allegiance to Rome and Caesar when it's convenient for them? We saw this at Jesus' trial, right? They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. That's a very interesting declaration when you consider what Isaiah wrote. Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel, 
and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. So who was their king? Who was the king of the chief priests? Who was the king of these Thessalonican Jewish leaders? Well, they said it themselves, Caesar. It's the same thing here. Let's defend Caesar's honor in hopes of preserving our position in society. Well, it worked. It worked. In verse 8, the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They take Jason, who had apparently hosted Paul and Silas and Timothy. They literally dragged him out and some other Christians to be condemned. Same word used, by the way, in Acts chapter 8 when it speaks of Saul's ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. They dragged Jason out before the leaders. Anyhow, here's Jason. He's, he's dragged out and he's harassed until he gives them some money. And then they go away. Eh, here's some money. And they take it. It's over. Nothing new under the sun, right? Interesting phrase in verse 6, though. These men who have turned the world upside down. Now, when Greeks used the term world, they were referring to the Roman Empire. That's all they really cared about at this point in history. For us, this is a clear indication that the shockwaves and ripples of the gospel's transforming powers were spreading throughout the provinces. All the, the witnesses that Christ had commissioned were beginning to, to gain a reputation all throughout the known word, world here, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Right? That's what he said would happen. And actually, this phrase, upside down, is also translated upsetting. They were upsetting the world. This message of Jesus was upsetting to the world. Well, praise the Lord, amen? We want to upset this world, don't we? Why? Because this world itself is upside down. It's corrupted, it's cursed, it's dark and depraved. It's repulsive to God. All of its inhabitants have fallen away. We have missed the mark. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We are enemies of God hostile in both mind and deed and thought in the sight of our Creator. And most will remain in this state, not only in this life, but for all of eternity thereafter because they fail to respond in belief. They are too focused on the things of this world, which are, which are going to pass away. And yet that's the primary focus. Too focused on life in this world, this world which is upside down. So in reality, these missionaries, this apostle and his companions, as well as all the other faithful Christians of the day and all faithful Christians up to today, all, all true believers since, all the way up to and including today, are simply here for the sole purpose of turning the world right side up. We're upsetting the upside down world. One faithful gospel proclamation at a time. One transformed heart at a time. They're upsetting an upside-down world, which is what divine truth always does. It always makes the wrongs right. It turns the darkness into light and sets free the sin-bound souls by the spread of the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. 
So let me ask you, how about you? Are you living your life in a way that is upsetting to this corrupted and cursed earth, or are you just going along with the flow? Are you getting any resistance or opposition because of your faith in Christ? Does this culture even know that you're called to be nothing like them? Do they even know that you've been set apart for holiness? Do the people of this world know that you are not of this world, though you are in this world? Do people even know that you have a message which can deliver them from their enslavement to this evil and corrupt world system and to their own sinful natures? Do they even know? Well, I hope they do. I hope so. Let's be world turners. As has been said, the men who move the world are the ones who don't let the world move them. Let's uh, turn this corrupt world upside down by standing on, submitting to, and faithfully proclaiming the very words of God regardless of the consequences we may face. Amen? Amen. So these Jewish authorities and their, their mob rob Jason of some cash, and Luke says in verse 10, they wait until nightfall, then they send Paul and Silas, these world turners out to the next city, which is Berea. Now, Thessalonica had about 200,000 people in it. Uh, Berea had about 6,000 at this time. So they go from the big city to the small town, but the ritual is the same. The custom is the same. Look at the last half of verse 10. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Well, there you go. Then Luke goes on to tell us about this Bereans. He says in verse 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. What does that mean? They were more noble. It means they were of a more noble social class. They were more respected in Roman culture. They were esteemed. They had greater personal qualities. They were more upright in thought and deed, and specifically in this case, how they treated people. This is Luke's descriptor of them, by the way. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, but are these the only type of people God saves? Noble people? Of course not. He's been saving all kinds of people in Acts, and he still does. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Same word, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. This is really good news, isn't it? This is one of my favorite verses. Because I was weak, and I was certainly foolish. But now we get into some details on how this relates to Paul and Silas. And I want you to notice the difference of the reception here. Look at the different response, okay? Verse 11. Everybody responds in a a different way. Watch how these guys respond. Verse 11. First, they received the word with all eagerness. They were glad to have Paul and Silas there. They were glad to hear the scriptures expounded. They were glad to hear these promises of God being fulfilled in Jesus. And Paul was saying the same things. He had uh, the same message no matter where he went. But unlike the Jews in the previous city, it seems that the the Bereans were especially delighted to hear this truth. And yet, they didn't just take Paul at his word. 
Okay? Look again at verse 11. Notice, they received the word with all eagerness, but not Paul's words, the word. They received it. They were not obstinate to it. They willingly heard and took, and took it in. Jesus spoke of what this uh, reception would look like, what, what receiving meant when he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. In the same way, these Bereans received the word of God, the gospel. They received it. Luke says they not only received the word, however, they examined the word. They, they verified the prophetic text Paul was referencing here. So again, they weren't like so many today. They didn't just say, well, if you say so, Paul, I mean, you're a great speaker, you're funny, you're entertaining, you're both convincing and convicting. You have such great quotes and personal illustrations and stories about your family and how your week went. I guess I better believe everything that comes out of your mouth because you make me feel really good about myself. No, they didn't say that. Not these Bereans here. They said, yeah, we get that, and we, we appreciate your faithful declaration of these truths, but we have to go back and check on these things ourselves. We will receive the word, but we're going to go back to the source and make sure what you're saying is true. That's the kind of people we need to be, to, to be when listening to teaching, and I don't care who it is. I would, I would say a hearty amen to that. Those guys on the shelves over there in the, in the recommended readings, Whitfield, Luther, Calvin, Ryle, MacArthur, we, we have to take the teachings of these men and cross-examine them with the text here. I, I have preached a couple hundred sermons there at Lakewood, Littleton, Orchard over the year, and the majority of my messages, I would say the same thing. Don't take my word for it. Look at your own Bibles. And just to keep the streak going, I'll say it again today. Don't take my word for it. Don't just take everything that I say. Now, I have to stand before a holy God to give an account for what I preach. For, for, I will be held accountable for what comes from this pulpit here. I don't have to stand before any of you on Judgment Day. I don't have to stand before any other congregations of men on Judgment Day. But I will stand before my infinitely righteous and holy judge. So I have reason to be as faithful as I possibly can to his word. But I'm not infallible. The only infallible parts of my sermon are, are when I read the text. That's it. Uh, but that's what I'm here expounding on. And when Chris, when Chris preaches, that's what he expounds on. Just like Spurgeon and Whitfield expounded on. That's what a preacher does. But you have the responsibility, and I have the responsibility, to examine the text to see if the things that we say are so. You have to do it. Too much at stake. Luther himself even said this. He said, I'd like that all my books be destroyed so that, the only, so that only the sacred writings in the Bible would be diligently read. He said, take all my works away if people will just read their Bibles. In other words, don't be a Lutheran. Be a Berean. Don't be a Calvinist. Be a Berean. Well, do be a Calvinist, but... Be a Berean first. May we all be good Bereans. You know, it's been asked, what is the model congregation? Answer, 
a congregation well provided with Bibles. A congregation that has the text before it and that looks from the sermon to the text, from the text to the sermon, from the text to the context, and that binds the speaking man to keep within the sacred brief which God has given to him. Amen. They went back to the text, which is what all of us should do. You don't don't have to be a scholar or a seminary professor to understand these things. Okay, it's like Tyndale said. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. I love that, first of all. (laughs) But he says, if God spares my life many years, I will see that the plowboy knows more of the scripture than the Pope himself. He wasn't talking about giving him a lecture on theology. He just said, I'm going to give him a Bible in his own language. He'll know more than the Pope. And again, I would say, amen. We can all understand this if we have the spirit of the living God dwelling on the inside of us and only if we have his spirit on the inside of us. Back to these Bereans here. Think about this. They have the, uh, an apostle come to them, an actual apostle whose letters were divinely inspired and would take up a good portion of the New Testament. But at this point, he's a preacher of divine truth. And they said, that sounds great, Paul. But now let us check the text. Why? Well, the text is from God himself. And Paul likely said, well, have at it. Go for it. And notice there that not only did they examine the scriptures to see if these things were so, but how often did they do it? Every Sabbath? Every Saturday? Every Sunday if there wasn't a football game on? No, they didn't just examine uh, them once per week and gather just enough information to critique the preacher. No, they examined the scriptures how often? Daily. Every day. Every day. They were in the text every day. Lakewood, may we be good Bereans. May we be like these... Bereans and do whatever it takes. There's nothing in your life as important as this. Nothing. Get a time. Get a place. Establish a a routine of your own, a habit of your own, a ritual of your own. Don't be afraid of that if it means you're reading the Word. Get in the Scriptures daily so you're not blown away by every wind of doctrine and swayed by these false teachers who would love for you to take them at their every word who prey on the weak. They prey on the spiritually immature. And who are the weak? Those who are not in the Word. Those who are not nourished by the Word. The Christian life won't find nourishment in one sermon per week. As has been said, if you think one sermon a week is sufficient, you need 200 sermons a week. We won't survive on one sermon per week. We need multiple sermons, multiple studies, multiple home group meetings, multiple Lessons. We have to be in the text every day. We have to be reading or listening, praying over this text and applying this text to our lives. This is how the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth has decided to speak to you. This is what your creator wants you to know about himself, his righteous character, his holy nature, his attributes, his perfect plan of redemption and how you and 
even me, can be saved from eternal, or to eternal life with him forever in the new heavens and the, the new earth. We can be forgiven of our sins. The only way we know about it is through his word. So examine these scriptures every day. Don't just take people at their word. Don't do it. May we be a good Bereans. They received the word with all eagerness, Luke says. They examine the scriptures daily. They examine them to see if these things were so. Go and do likewise, brothers and sisters. Go and do likewise. Luke sums up the response of these Bereans in verse 12. He says, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Jews believed. God fears believed. Many of the leading women believed. That's twice he said that. Showing again the, the view of women in the Roman Empire was different than that of Jerusalem. When these noble and leading influential women believed, that meant something. And it meant a lot. They would be powerful witnesses themselves, so he says it twice. But Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. These Jews who gathered the riffraff and started these riots back in Thessalonica, they came all the way down to Berea, down to Paul and Silas. They followed him. Talk about obsessed. These guys were first century, first class stalkers. They were creeps. They brought their corruption into the place where God was working. They were doing the very same thing they were accusing Paul and Silas of doing, remember? They did it. Luke says in verse 14, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Paul goes to Athens. He preaches the resurrection of the Christ. Very fitting for our service next week. Very fitting. But for now, I want you to again think of your personal response to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just yourself. Don't think about your wife's response Don't think about the response of your children or anybody else in this church. I want you to think of your personal response to what you just heard. We have a ritual here every Sunday, okay? And at our other churches, Littleton and Orchard, we we stand out of reverence for God's word. I don't know how many times I've heard that over the years, thousands of times. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. All the preachers of the, the churches even have the same cadence when they say it. It's a bit odd. Nevertheless, we say it, and we stand, and we hear, and we exposit the text verse by verse, but how do we respond to the text? How do we respond to the foundational truths which Paul spoke of in these synagogues, but more importantly wrote about under the inspiration of God himself? Ask yourself how you respond to the truths which uh, Paul calls matters of first importance. Like I said, there's nothing more important in your life. First importance. The essential, non-negotiable, fundamental components of the gospel of God. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. How do you respond to these truths? How do you respond to these truths? Do you receive them with gladness? Do you examine and apply them to your lives regularly? Do you believe them by the grace of God and therefore enjoy a peace that surpasses all understanding regardless of the circumstances in your life? Do you believe them regardless of what this world, this corrupted and cursed upside down world throws your way? brings into your life? Do you believe them? Or do you deny them? Do you reject them? And in doing so, reject the one who wrote them? I would implore you today. Beg you today. I would beg you to hear his word this morning. To, to believe in the marvelous truths of his scripture which say that Messiah came to suffer and die in the place of sinners like you, like me. If you would but believe. Believe in these scriptures that say that he died, took the place of all who would believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation. Which Believe in these scriptures which say that he was triumphantly raised from the dead three days later, having conquered both sin and death. I would implore you to go right to the source and examine these things for yourself. To never stop learning the character and the nature of the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. To never stop learning about his glorious gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Let's go to prayer now, and Noel and the ladies will come up and lead us in musical worship.